A childhood letter from Badger Clark inspired a future rancher to a lifetime of poetry and writing. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, November 2nd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we welcome South Dakota's own Linda Hazelstrom. We'll talk about her relationship with the work of Badger Clark and the poet himself. Then, winter may still be on the horizon, but it's not too early to curl up inside the winter wonderland of illustrator Jan Brett. The author of classic children's books like The Mitten and The Three Snow Bears is coming to the Black Hills. Before she hits the road, we'll talk with the beloved author about her art and her process. Plus, Kevin Wooster returns from the frozen landscape of Mount Blogmore. We'll get a recap of the Invitational Hunt. That's coming later in the hour. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Some Black Hills residents near Custer are concerned with the results of recent logging. A timber sale authorized by the controversial Black Hills Resilient Landscape Project was designed to take out the biggest ponderosa pines. However, SDPB's Lee Strubinger reports not everyone is pleased with the forest's new look. Jessica Brown gazes at a portion of the National Forest near her family's home. Last summer, logging crews working on the Bull Springs timber sale cut down the biggest pine trees in the sections surrounding Round Mountain. With that forest overstory gone, what remains are dense clusters of small ponderosa pine that look more like bushes. But when I look at this and many, many, many other areas in the Black Hills that this has happened to, I see no sustainability. I see greed. And, and I see a lot of disrespect for the people that live here. A year after the logging, the land still bears scars. Large equipment cut lanes for easier access, and now those lanes look like miniature ski runs during the off-season. Brown homeschools her children. She points to a limestone ridge about a mile away and says it's a place her children would often go. When my kids would just need to process stuff, we would go sit on that ridge, look for elk, check the wildlife. We can't do that now. Everything behind that hill is gone. It's it's too hot to walk in the summer. There's no shade. It's just a mess. Like, it has completely changed our way of life. That's not what we signed on for when we moved out here. Brown and her family have lived here for six years. They run their own sawmill and construction company. They've lived with the results of the overstory removal for a year now. Brown says losing the mature trees has changed the wind flow on her property. Snowdrifts are taller in the winter, and their house is 10 to 15 degrees warmer in the summer. We love the Black Hills. This is not what we want to live in. In the 2000s, the Forest Service thinned dense ponderosa stands to get ahead of the beetle epidemic. The transformation allowed young, understory trees to become very dense. Those trees are often called dog hair. Then, five years ago, the U.S. Forest Service approved the Black Hills Resilient Landscapes Project, which includes management recommendations for nearly the entire Black Hills. The plan was designed to help the forest recover from the pine beetle epidemic and large-scale wildfires that had changed the structure of the landscape. Mark Van Every was the forest supervisor when the Resilient Landscapes Project was approved. He said the forest had nearly double the number of mature trees under 16 inches in diameter than the forest plan called for. To keep the forest healthy, he said those smaller trees need attention. Here he is describing the plan in 2018. And those are going to be 
over time uh, more susceptible to fire, more susceptible to insects and disease if they're not thinned um, and managed. And so keeping those older trees on the top of those stands uh, continues to add more seed to the soil and increases the density of those trees. Back at the Bull Springs acreage near Custer, retired forester David Mertz questions what the project had accomplished. And the only thing that I can come up with is they provided saw timber to the sawmills. Mertz says the understory that remains will eventually create a problem. Thick, dense tree stands will compete for sunlight, water, and nutrients. Eventually, if they aren't thinned, they'll become more susceptible to infestation or fire in the future. What we've done is we've created a whole bunch of young stands about the same age, and because there's not the money to thin them, a lot of them are just way too dense and too thick. Thinning a forest's understory is costly. The contract for the Bull Springs timber sale is what's called a stewardship contract. It gives logging companies mature timber to cut in exchange for services. In this case, thinning dog hair stands. The full Bull Springs project area covers more than 13,000 acres. Of that, Nyman Timber Company has commercially harvested 4,000 acres. Nyman's contract with the federal government requires that the company thin about 1,400 acres at the cost of nearly half a million dollars. An interview request to Nyman Enterprises was declined. However, Paul Pearson, Nyman's Black Hills operations manager, says while the timber industry initially supported the Resilient Landscapes project, it opposes some of the project's forest management techniques. Pearson says overstory removal to cut down the largest trees is one important step, but he says industry leaders have been clear with national forest managers many of the areas they've implemented this action in do not make sense. Matthew Daly is a natural resources officer for the Black Hills National Forest. He helped organize the Bull Springs Stewardship Timber Sale Project. He says it runs through 2025. The follow-up service work to thin those smaller trees is not completed yet, and these contracts take um, several years to complete, and as funding becomes available, the intention was to continue going back and continue that work uh, in the future. Daly says an added benefit of the stewardship sale model is producing wood fiber for the timber industry, which he says is a tool that helps thin the forest. We did want to make sure we were able to produce enough timber uh, and wood fiber products for them. The timber industry also views itself as playing a crucial role in forest management, but industry officials say they've been strained in recent years. Nyman closed a mill in Hill City in 2021, and the company says it's at risk of closing another. Carl Fiedler is a forester, ecologist, and retired professor from the University of Montana. He's also a co-author of several books about trees and forests in the American West, including Ponderosa Pine. He says if the Bull Springs stands are thinned and the Ponderosa trees are given a chance to flourish, the effects of the overstore removal can diminish in a few years. And you get a foot off each side of the tree of branch extension each year, and you'd be surprised how quickly, I've seen it over and over again, people say, oh, they thinned that stand too much. And, you know, five, ten years later, then somebody will say, boy, why didn't they thin this more? You know, the trees are, the crowns are touching already. Forest Service officials say there's federal bipartisan infrastructure money targeted to thin the forest and reduce the fuel load. 
there are more stewardship contracts planned for 2024 that will include thinning work. But as the value of timber comes down and operating expenses go up, the amount of that service work in return for timber contracts will decrease. That means in the future, more tax dollars will be needed to thin our forests. I'm SDPB's Lee Strubinger and Custer. You can find and share this story on our website, sdpb.org news. And in case you missed it, find Black Hills in the Balance, an hour-long look at the Black Hills National Forest online, sdpb.org slash in the balance. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. SDPB celebrates the life of Badger Clark, our first poet laureate. You can find our documentary, Badger Clark, Poet Among the Pines, online at sdpb.org watch. Well, one of the South Dakotans who talks about Badger Clark in the film is South Dakota writer and rancher Linda Hazelstrom. She's an award-winning poet. Her books include Bitter Creek Junction, Gathering from the Grassland, A Plains Journal, and her latest book, Walking the Changes. Linda stopped by the SDPB Black Hill Studios for this conversation. You have such a wonderful connection with Badger Clark and his poetry, but also with the man because you were neighbors. Tell me a little bit about being a young child and getting your first copy of a Badger Clark collection. Well, the sad part about it was that being, in spite of being neighbors, I never met him. Mm -hmm. But my first Badger Clark book is inscribed in my grandmother's shaky handwriting in the back to my dear little granddaughter, Linda, for her 15th birthday, July 14, 1958, Cora Hay. Wow. And she gave me a copy of Skylines and Woodspoke. Now, my grandmother never finished eighth grade. She had uh, siblings to take care of. And she didn't spell very well. One of the things I did was write letters for her sometimes. So for her to find a book of poetry that she thought I'd enjoy and give it to me was an, a remarkable act. At the age of 15, how did you use that poetry book? Did you read it? Did you memorize it? What was its role <laughs> in your life? Oh, I absolutely memorized some of the poems and... Uh, and began, of course, writing rhymed iambic pentameter, which I eventually gave up because unless you're as good as Badger at it, you ought to give it up. And not enough poets give it up. Uh, <laughs> so we're swamped with bad examples of rhyming iambic pentameter, but Badger Clark did it well. He did it well indeed. Tell me a little bit about moving the cattle because you've told me this story before and I just love to hear you tell it again. <laughs> <laughs> about that iambic pentameter is is useful well, on it, the back of a horse. It fits right in with the way horses walk. And so I found that some of the Badger Clark poems that I had read, I, w I started remembering them as I was riding along behind the cattle on my horse. Da-dum, 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 da-dum. <laughs> And pretty soon I was be able to recite some of these poems. And, and occasionally... You know, my father did not approve of swearing, and uh, sound carries very well on the prairie. So if I <laughs> swore at a cow, he would remonstrate with me later at noon. So I got to 
doing things like bellowing, I'll round up on the Healy one sweet morning long ago, <laughs> which has a tendency <laughs> to crack up technicians in uh, <laughs> public broadcasting rooms and also to make cows move faster. So... Maybe we'll make our staff move faster, too. Uh, I hope they don't all resign. Uh, we have a very swift-moving staff, so I actually need them to slow down a little bit sometimes for my benefit. Um, the, the content of the poem, the words had meaning, the rhythm had meaning, but what about what he had to say? What resonated with you then? Oh, just that knowledge of uh, being out in space, oh Lord, I've never lived where churches grow. And what I was looking at over in our east pasture was uh, what Badger seemed to be seeing. Uh, and, and as a ranch child, I really identified with, I'm no slave of whistle, clock, or bell, nor weak-eyed prisoner of wall and street. And you understand that at that point I had escaped from being a weak-eyed prisoner of wall and street. My mother had married a rancher when I was nine years old, we moved out to the ranch. I immediately got a horse and uh, began to have the freedom to go anywhere I could open and shut the <laughs> gates, which yeah. gave me several thousand acres of freedom before long. Wow. And, um, and I really identified, give me work that's open to the sky. Make me a partner of the wind and sun, and I won't ask a life that's soft or high. That was my idea of perfect, perfect life. When did you start writing? Oh, and was it connecting at the same time? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I'm not aware of having written anything before I was nine years old, but the minute I moved out to that ranch, there were things I wanted to remember. Mm, um, yeah. I'd be moving cattle and see a coyote slick, slicking off to the side to get out of our way, and I wanted to remember how it moved and. I wanted to remember how the cows behaved with their calves and uh, everything. And I started writing everything down. And my mother paid attention to this kind of thing and uh, started giving me little journals, little tiny notebooks. And they were smaller at the beginning, and they've gotten larger over time. <laughs> but they still fit in my purse. But um, I, I, immediately, I started carrying them with me in the pocket of my jeans or my shirt so I could write even while I was writing. Wow. Yeah. Did you become a better seer or listener? Like, Oh, absolutely. Were you aware of that happening? Were you, like, was there a moment of sort of self-aware learning, or did that just happen gradually as you spent more time in your notebook? Oh, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I was probably aware of it. Yeah because it became very important to me to write these things down and take notes about these things. Um, so many, ooh, I'm not, I'm not around small children today by my preference. And, but my impression is that they are glued to their electronic media and aren't looking around at what's happening around them. Uh, I think this is probably less true of ranch kids who can get bit by a rattlesnake if they're not paying attention. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's very important and it's something that needs to be done. Yeah. Look around. Look around. South Dakota and the place that you were was worthy of his words and yours. 
and so much in our lives we encounter as South Dakotans pushes back against us on that idea. But you more than anybody, I'm going to stand by that, you more than anybody <laughs> as a South Dakota writer have said we are worthy of language and attention. Thank you. I, that really has been an aim of mine, and, and it's, I don't know at what point it became a conscious aim, but uh, South Dakota is one of those states that uh, there's several well-known quotes about people leaping over yeah. this uh, area. And I want people to know that it's valuable. I also want them to know that it's valuable as it is and that we don't necessarily want you coming out here to fix it and modernize it and make it more with it. <laughs> uh, we, we like some of it the way it is, like we like ranching the way it is. Uh, I've had people who actually came to me and suggested that my land is just fine as long as I plowed it up and grew artichokes or something to feed people. And, wow. You know, the total lack of understanding, which, of course, then I have to explain to them at great length. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote Badger Clark a letter. You said you never met him, but you wanted to. Tell me I a little bit to. about the letter that you wrote to him. Well, when I was in eighth grade in Hermosa School, the teacher somehow became aware that I was an admirer of Badger Clark. I probably uh, recited some of the poems or something and decided that he should come to our school to speak to our school, eighth grade graduation. And he was doing a lot of that then. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to him and asked him. Uh, was I was writing to arrange him for him to come down to our school. He complimented me on my spelling. He said my <laughs> spelling was, was excellent. And uh, I was in the middle of arranging him with, with him to come down to school when he died. Um, and I recently, I went back to the Hermosa School, in preparation actually for this interview, I went back to Hermosa School and said, do you have those papers? Mm. And they said that at the time, the custom was for the teacher to take anything like that with her. And they couldn't even find records on who that teacher was. But she's probably long, long dead, and her relatives probably tossed sure. the papers. So you do have a copy of his words on the Windbreak House blog archives. Yeah, and he does say, "I want to congratulate you on being able to express yourself on yes. paper." What did that mean for you? Oh my, that probably <laughs> started this whole thing. Seventeen books later, we can blame it on Bedger Clark because. Uh, I don't think it had occurred to me that my writing could be books until then. Mm. Uh, he did books, but I didn't think I could. Yeah. Writing and reading are both neglected arts in these days. There's also this absolutely poignant letter that he wrote you, a, a postcard, I think you say in this uh, blog archive, right before he died, saying, well, you know, we're going to push this back. Yeah. To the fall, but don't worry. This may look like a long time to you, but when you're my, well, age, my age, it ain't. It ain't. It ain't. <laughs> <laughs> it ain't. <laughs> yep. And and he knew that I'd know that that was colloquial. And yeah. Not correct. Uh, and now that I am eighty years old, which is older than he got to be, uh, 
I really sense the importance of those words at eight. Yeah. In my middle age, Linda, one of the things that I am learning anew is that I will have to carry all the grief with me if I am lucky enough to become 80, and I hope that I am, that it will be cumulative. And I know this is, you know, maybe deeper than we want to go, so we'll veer off, but you have experienced grief in a way that it, it doesn't get any easier, does it? No. No. The death of one husband doesn't make the death of the second one any easier to take. Yeah. I'm so sorry that that has been part of your recent story. Why do we need, in times like these, whether we think about the world or whether we think about fate that takes people away from us, why do books, why does poetry still something we return to again and again, even if it doesn't soothe us, even if it doesn't change anything, why because do we reach it, for it? Because it does, it does tell us about the things that we've suffered. Mm-hmm. And it says it in ways that we haven't been able to say. When you look back at his poetry books now, and you have some amazing copies, do you read them differently than you did when you were a young person? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I saw the, uh, the joy in them before, the mm-hmm. writing and the, and the joyfulness, but now I can see some of the sorrow. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Here's, here's a little... Yours is the sunny blue roof I ride under, mountain and plain of the house you have made. Sometimes it roars with the wind and the thunder, but in your house I am never afraid. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I just picked up a copy of your book at the Festival of Books. Well, explain to, to people how you did the Hot Springs how Badger wrote about Hot Springs and then how you brought that to other readers. Well, the wonderful thing about that book is that uh, Peggy Sanders found the photographs to go with the book when Hot Springs was a pub. And that expanded what he had done a great deal. And the really important thing that I want to say about that book right now is that uh, this is this is the phrasing that I used. Because I, like Badger Clark, enjoy thinking of his words entertaining readers for years to come, I hereby give my copyrights to all of the material in which I have a vested interest in the 2020 interest of When Hot Springs Was a Pup to the Fall River County Historical Society and Pioneer Museum. So that that gift is intended to let that nonprofit organization to be the exclusive publishers of that book. And I think that Badger would really enjoy knowing that the people in Hot Springs would continue to benefit uh, from the historical society and from his words. Yeah, that is a remarkable gift. May I press you for another gift, which is um, some sort of reading of the Badger Clark poem of your choice? Oh, dear. 
<laughs> well, let's see what I can do. Okay, here it is. This is called the coyote. Trailing the last gleam after in the valleys emptied of light, ripples a whimsical laughter under the wings of the night. Mocking the faded west airily, meeting the little bats merrily, over the mesas it shrills to the red moon on the hills. Mournfully rising and waning far through the moon-silvered land wails a weird voice of complaining over the thorns and the sand. Out of blue silences eerily, onto the black mountains wearily, till the dim desert is crossed, wanders the cry and is lost. Here, by the fire's ruddy streamers, tired with our hopes and our fears, we inarticulate dreamers hark to the song of our years. Up to the brooding divinity, far in that sparkling infinity, cry our despair and delight, voice of the western night. Mm. I love this. One of my favorite Badger Clark poems, and one I can still hear <laughs> when I go outside at night, and the coyotes, some of them, sometimes they get very close. I don't let my Westie out after dark. Okay, good um, to know. <laughs> but I also, I look at this as a writer, and I think, he set himself an interesting problem here. To do that airily, merrily, wearily, eerily, uh, divinity, infinity. Yeah. What what a problem to set yourself as a writer. I wouldn't start out thinking, well, I think I'll do that just to challenge myself. And he did, and he yeah. made it work. This is, going back to what you said in the beginning, this is, I think, one of the great deceptions of Badger Clark, that people put him in... Um, I remember being out at Badger Hole and reading some of the work that was, you know, um, placed around the cabin. I didn't realize that he was that sophisticated. And oh, yeah. So many people make assumptions because of the iambic pentameter, because of the the content of his work, that uh, it was unsophisticated, and yeah. it was anything but. And For I've gone to the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering many times over the years, yeah. and it's one of the things, it's a fantastic thing, it's a great thing to be doing, it, it has brought out of the woodwork some amazing poets who never would have seen their work in print, and who were real cowboys. It also encourages some of the most horrible uh, examples of iambic pentameter, where, where I would be backstage just holding something over my face to keep from <laughs> collapsing in hysterical laughter at this earnest person oh. out there trying desperately to express himself. <laughs> But keep trying, keep all trying. All good, yes, and I always encourage them <laughs> yeah. to keep at keep it. Keep going. You know, yeah. I, I wasn't any good when I started either. Yeah. You know, oh. You have to keep at it. Um, one of the things that uh, you have taught me as a writer, I, I owe much of my writing practice to the workshops I've taken from you and to the books that you have written. Um, for me, one of the things that's close to my heart is your connection with yeah, being under the sky. I'm, you know, I'm likely to have my nose in a book. I'm likely to be indoors. And you constantly, not when I was a child, I was always outside then, but work has pressed me indoors. Yep. You're always reminding me Good. to put my feet on the ground. <laughs> we let that happen, and I let it happen to myself. I sit in front of my computer and yeah. get absorbed in something, and uh, 
that's another good reason to have a dog. You have to right. go outside every now and then. Yes, I love that. Anything else you want us to, to say about Badger Clark or about poetry in South Dakota today? What do you want to leave listeners with, Linda? Write. Write. Write what you think. Write what you believe. Write it down. And don't throw it away. Uh, sure, you'll look back at some of it later and be embarrassed by it, but that's you. That's your life. Write it. Keep track of it. One of South Dakota's great writers, Linda Hazelstrom. And you can find Badger Clark, Poet Among the Pines, on our website, sdpb.org watch. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. New York Times best-selling author and illustrator Jan Brett is coming to the Black Hills. Jan Brett's Winter Wonderland bus tour rolls into Rapid City, courtesy of SDPB, United Way Black Hills Reads, the Rapid City Public Library, and Early Learner South Dakota. Look for her on Tuesday, December 5th at the Western Dakota Tech Event Center. We've got more information on our website. Before she hits the road, however, we sat down with Jan Brett via Zoom. Now, during the conversation you're about to hear, Jan will hold up books and flip through pages. So check out our YouTube channel to see everything and to share it with the young readers in your home or classroom. We are bringing you just a snippet of this chat today. More on that later. But first, take a listen. Sitting down with the great Jan Brett, what a privilege <laughs> and honor. We're so excited you are coming through South Dakota. Now you travel all over the world for your books. Have you been through South Dakota before? Yes, we have. Right. We have been to the Corn Palace and we have been to, um, I think a couple of different cities. And um, it's, it's great. We're on the bus. We're on this great big bus. And the, we're in the back of the bus. And the bus drivers have a great view of everything. And we just see things go by really fast. <laughs> so it's not as good as you would think. But we do get to have some um, looking out on the sides. And our bus is wrapped with this, you know, with whatever books I'm working on or am talking about. So uh, that kind of makes it like, not as clear as it could be, but right. we do get a sense. We do get a sense, yes. Yeah. Are you able to work on the bus? Do you do any writing or yes. or sketching? Yes. Tell me a little bit about versus I working do. in a home studio. What's the studio bus like? The studio bus is just the kitchen table, but I do it when we have mornings off or you know days off or any spare moment. I bring my work, and um, right now I'm in my studio. That's standing still <laughs> but but I do and then I then when the bus is moving then I usually have a project like it could be um knitting or needlepoint those are my two go-to projects now I also needlepoint and we could go oh. on a long tangent so we'll stick to the books but do you paint your own canvases yes you do yes. Of course, yeah, of course. <laughs> I have I have needle pointed other canvases, but yeah. I, mostly I do my own. Oh, that is. So I've done a lot of dining room chairs. I've done seat cushions, and I don't know everything. You know, for years I've done it. Yes, and it's great. It's great to keep your hands busy. 
there is this um, beautiful winter collection that is coming out from G.P. Putnam and Sons this fall, gathering some of your delightful winter books together in one box set, The Snowy Nap, The Hat, Cozy, and The Three Snow Bears. What it looks like. Oh, I love that. There it is. There it is. I I worked very hard on the cover because... In, normally a book would have a jacket, but this is like a slipcover. And so um, they wanted to do something in-house and I said, oh, it's gonna be special. So I'm really happy with this. It's, it has the little birch bark from, um, I think it's the hat. And then it's got Cozy, which is one of the books, a musk ox, which is a very interesting animal. Um, Hedgy in the hat, the three snow bears, which I went up to Nunavut in Canada to do. So it's, um, it's very far north. And then this one is the nap, the snowy nap. And that also starts hedgy. So we got two hedgies, bears and, and uh, muskox. <laughs> really should be called another name because I don't smell bad at all. <laughs> I, I've sniffed one. <laughs> you sniffed one for the book. Let's talk about Cozy because this book comes out in 2020. Yeah, in 2020, which is a time when a lot of children might have been stuck inside, might have been longing for a connection that is uh, demonstrated in Cozy for that feeling of family, house rules that have to maybe change and be reestablished for boundaries. When that book came out for you, because you would have written it before COVID-19, how did you see it find its place in the world at that particular time for kids who were pretty stressed out. I, I thought it was amazing that it happened that way because first of all, I took a little bit of a leap with the muskox. I just fell in love with them, but whatever I fall in love with doesn't necessarily mean everybody's gonna fall in love with them. And so it was a little bit of a stretch. I think um, the publisher, I won't put words in their mouth, I think a lot of people thinking about selling books are thinking about bunnies and bears and kind of cozy animals, but the muskox is is pretty interesting. And there's a certain kind of child that loves to learn about um, animals from the Pleistocene or dinosaurs, or they like to learn about exotic animals, a platypus perhaps, or, and when I, I know this because when I, talk to kids in the book line I always ask them to break the ice you know what's your favorite animal and there's this some will say or dog or cat but then some will have something that I'm like you know what is that you know they'll think of something very unusual so I'm I was thinking of those kids when I wrote when I did the muskox book here it is where it's cozy when I did cozy and my daughter had moved to Alaska and she had gone to the muskox farm which is a place where they're semi-habituated and they're almost like an Arctic goat. And they, uh, they comb their under fur to make a, a fiber called kiviat. And it's very warm. It's one of the warmest in the world. And you can knit with it. It's really impossible to knit with, I have to say. But um, the people that live there, the people that are native people, they knit it and they did it like, they do it like uh, the Russian uh, knitting of this of those cashmere shawls that have holes in them mm-hmm. and that gives it a stretch because it's so warm but it doesn't stretch very much like a wool sweater would so they um knit with that 
and I they I have knitted with it and it's hard. Yeah. But the um it's very warm. It's totally <laughs> warm. And sometimes I put musk mux ox fiber in my mittens and my boots and it keeps them warm. Yeah. So so back to your question, in the, I was thinking about introducing this amazing animal to to children. And then to find out there would be this extra part that I just wrote in because it worked with the story was just a big coincidence. I was very happy with, very happy with. It speaks to the role that Jan Brett books have in our lives as, as parents who are looking for something to spend, to really spend time with kids. It's not a book that you, you know, go through quickly, just read the story. There's so much more. It's, you know, you're, if you're a parent, and there's Jan Brett books in your house or a teacher, you're going to come around the corner and the child is going to be exploring all the the end papers and the, the, the borders and everything and going back and forth and finding the multiple stories. I think it really speaks to the role these books have in children's lives. Like they're going to grow up and they're going to say, you know, what do you remember about the pandemic? And they're going to be like hedgy or cozy <laughs> or... <laughs> You know, you're you're just making me so moved because, you know, I I could get really fancy and say that when I grew up, my my mother was a, and father both, but my mother was a teach, teacher, and she um, really felt we should have good literature for children, and I always felt that children are not less intelligent than we are; they just haven't had the experiences. But everything is there. Their their minds are actually more vibrant and absorbing than an adult mind. I mean, Yo-Yo Ma, I just saw an interview with him and the, the famous cellist. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you're going to learn something, learn it before you're, you're 20. I, you could probably make that 16 because your minds are so absorbing. They're just grabbing things because as human beings, our intellect is what drives us. And that has to get um, you know started with a nice little... Uh, a, a way of seeing the world and you can't take a little kid and you know send them all over the world but you can give them a book that will send them all over the world mm-hmm. so I, I like to think of that as these intelligent little beings that are looking at all these um, pictures which they can't read or they are being read to but they uh, what makes me happy and what speaks to what you just said is when they get their pointer finger out <clears throat> And they look at all the different things and the adult, you know, somehow we all want to speed read and get to the end of the book and all of that. So I love that the idea that the children will dwell on a page and notice, I put little special things in there. Sometimes it's the border, like at this point, the next page, when you turn it, it's going to be uh, the Wolverine who's fallen into a lead, which I use the word lead even though that they won't know what that means because they'll figure it out. Um, and there's, you can see that there's a little smashed place in the ice. Yes. Uh, let's see. You yeah. get it. And then in the next page, he's, he's fallen in and he's covered with ice balls. So he comes along and he, he tries to, he asks Cozy if he can get in because he's covered with ice balls. And interestingly enough, that I put in my um, news notes, which is my little letter I have on the internet and I send out to fans and stuff that uh the wolverine is the one animal that is it's the shafts of the fur are so slippery that ice can't stick to them so i had to use my artistic license and this must have been a special case maybe the 
the, um, the water froze really quickly and stuck to its fur. That's Jan Bratt, author of The Mitten, Fritz and the Beautiful Horses, The Three Snow Bears, and The Hat, and many more. Jan Bratt's Winter Wonderland bus tour rolls into the Black Hills of South Dakota on December 5th at 5 p.m. local time. We'll put more information on our website at sdpb.org news. In the meantime, that is only a small segment of our chat with the New York Times best-selling illustrator and author. We'll bring you the rest as the event gets closer, and you'll find the full conversation on SDPB's YouTube channel soon. You'll also see excerpts pop up here and there on the SDPB News Instagram page in the days ahead. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Since 2007, journalists, politicians, and citizens deeply engaged in politics have been gathering at the Mount Blogmore Invitational Pheasant Hunt. SDPB's Kevin Wooster is one of the hunt's founders. This year, he braved the icy winds to bring people together around one of the state's beloved traditions, pheasant hunting, and one of the state's most beloved, though unofficial, pastimes, jousting over politics. I caught up with Kevin Wooster yesterday for a recap. Well, I, I'm just looking today, and it's, I think, up around 50 degrees here and sunny here in Rapid City and hardly any wind. And I said to Mary, gosh, this would have been a nice day for the Mount Blogmore <laughs> hunt. But you don't pick the days you, you know, that, that you have. You just pick the date and yeah. uh, kind of live in South Dakota. You live with what you get. And so it was started out about 16 degrees or something and got up to 23 and refused to get any higher than that, except the wind went higher. So it got oh. colder kind of as the way went on, day went on. So, And yet you still had those heartwarming moments where people who couldn't be on more opposite sides of the polls politically found common ground at the hunt. Yeah. That's what it's all about. What it did, is what it's all about. Yeah. You know? Tell us a little bit you know, about we, the kinds of connections you saw and memories that were made well the the blog that i'm you know that we're going to publish here probably this afternoon sometime uh, is is um, starts with larry mays and uh and bill walsh and you know larry mm -hmm. and i imagine you know bill i do and larry's a retired air force colonel and about as conservative as it gets and bill walsh is uh as a former priest and a retired businessman, about as liberal as it gets. And uh, I saw the two of them at the end of a sh cold, windy shoulder belt, freezing and smiling, talking. Went over and took a picture of them and thought, that's the Blogmore hunt right there. These buddies who would disagree on just about everything politically and who are pals and having a great time and remembering the things that they do share and the things they do have in common and the friendship they have. Tell me a little bit about the history of Mount Blogmore for people who don't know, and its its future. Well, I hope it has a future. Although I'm I'm 72, and I think sometimes how long can I be the, you know, kind of the guy? And Nick's a few years younger than I am, uh, but we're at this point going strong. And it started in 2007 when I was one of the moderators on a blog on the Rep City Journal website, Mount Blogmore. So many people were hating each other on the blog in political discussions that Nick Nemec, uh, the, the farmer host, uh, hosts it with his wife, Mary Jo, near Hollibird, was also on blogs then uh, commenting, was on Blogmore a lot. 
we decided to get people together and have a South Dakota traditional pheasant hunt, mm-hmm. which my boss at the journal thought was a bad idea with guns. And, you know, mm-hmm. we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. And we knew exactly what would happen. These people that seemed to hate each other in these political discussions, uh, arguments, fights, would not hate each other when they got together and when they sat down and ate together in a welcoming farm home environment and shared this outdoor passion, this experience that they, most of them had had. And those who came to the hunt and hadn't hunted pheasants and actually didn't hunt that day knew enough about its importance to the state and what a tradition it was that they wanted to be involved and were. And that's kind of the way it's gone ever since with a few very minor political disagreements, never a harsh word spoken uh, in all those years we've had it. And this year was no exception. Not as much shooting, maybe a little more talking, a little more listening, a little more eating. <laughs> in other words, the bird count doesn't matter here. We, I think maybe one year or two we've gotten our limit. Otherwise, we never get our limit. We always make, we never start when we can start when legal shooting hours are because we're always talking and eating donuts. And, and we never hunt until legal shooting hours are allow us to because we're, it's time to get back and become, you know, resume the fellowship. And, and the, the, the things, you know, as, as I say on the blog, if you come for a bird body count, you're at the wrong hunt. Uh, if you come to talk to people and to reach out to people that maybe you disagree with, maybe you didn't even like. I mean, that, I try to mix it when I have this, you know, when I have the invitations and set things up to bring a lot of different people together. Mm-hmm. And if that's why you're there, you're you're at the Mount Blogmore Hunt for the right reason. And I leave there thinking, is, isn't there a way we could do more of this in our everyday lives? Shouldn't we try to? Are there concerns, you know, a lot of people who are there, like many hunts, many traditional hunts, the demographic is aging, and there are young people coming, but maybe not as many as they're getting to the point where they have mobility challenges, or maybe they, you know, are going to hang up the shotgun this year, not just for hunting, but for figuring out ways to get together in the spirit of this particular hunt. Was there any conversation about people being worried that um, that division will make this untenable? Well, now that you mention it, I'm getting a little worried when I think about it. You know, because <laughs> I look at the, I call up the picture of our, our group after mm-hmm. the hunt. There were a couple of young hunters there. Thank goodness, one was uh, Jake Schoenbeck, Lee Schoenbeck's son, and you know, a very young fella, the uh, Corbin Powell, who was uh, the, the Nemec's grandson, and a younger Josh Heyer, a young reporter. There are a few youthful people there, and most of the people were 60-plus. And so that's a good point, you know, I've, and maybe something I'll really consider next year when we're talking about it. Uh, the practical aspect of it is we don't have quite as many young hunters to beat the heaviest cover as we'd like to have, and yeah. part of the goal is to get some of the guys that don't get around as well as they used to to make sure they get a shot or two. Yeah. Um, but also, you make such a very good point that I hadn't thought much about sending to try and reach out to younger people to give that message that, that the hunt brings every year, which is find ways to reach out to people that aren't political, that it, maybe you won't 
agree on these things, but maybe there are places you can find the humanity in the person that you think you dislike or maybe even that you think you hate. Is it possible to do that elsewhere? Yeah. Is it possible? (laughs) May it be so. May it always be so. May it be so. Yeah. You can find Kevin Wooster's writing at sdpb.org slash Wooster. Thank you, friend. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, my friend. That's our show for today. We hope that it served you. Have you missed an episode of In the Moment? Subscribe to our podcast. All our full shows are waiting there for you to explore. Individual segments and conversations are available online at sdpb.org news. You can follow our interviews and stories on the SDPB News Instagram and Twitter feeds. Behind the scenes videos are on our YouTube channel. For Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.